The Church at Ross Bridge is a bridge to belonging, believing, and becoming in Jesus Christ. We hope you enjoyed this message and visit our website at rossbridge.church. Good morning, church. It is so good to be with you in this fourth Sunday of our series, From the Deep. Before we begin our message today, I'm delighted to welcome our congregational member and friend, Yolanda Nina. Yolanda is a member of our 14-person church leadership council. Uh, She's part of the elected officers that we appoint to three-year terms. She's also served as a member of our eight-person discernment team. And earlier in our nine o'clock service, we had a member of that team provide an important update of new information that we have. And in this service, we've asked Yolanda if she would share this with us. Yolanda? Good morning, church. Don't worry, I'm not going to do the sermon. Um, we just, on behalf of the discernment team, we have some great news to share. Um, for those who have been attending the informational sessions, whether in person or online, or you've seen through the FAQ, through the email communication, we communicated that um, the exit cost to become an independent church, should we vote as a church to disaffiliate from the UMC, sorry, from the UMC, we would need to pay an amount of $143,000. That estimate was valid up until the end of September. So we did receive the updated estimate a couple of days ago, and that has dropped down to $82,000. And that is valid up until the end of December this year, which is why the urgency of trying to get the vote and everything done in time. So effectively, that means that um, the three buckets, the pension, liability, the fair share, the clergy benefits, all of it has dropped by a total of 42%. And what that means is that instead of having to recoup that cost over um, 21 months, as we initially communicated, that has dropped down to eight months. So that is great news. So I just wanted to share that with you. Thank you. I want to say thank you to Yolanda and Eric for sharing today, but again to our eight-person discernment team who have so carefully and prayerfully and wisely discerned what they believed was best for this congregation, and we'll have an opportunity to act on that next Sunday evening. May we pray. We give you thanks today, God, for this local church. We give you thanks for the United Methodist Church and for all the various expressions of your great Methodist revival in the world since the 1700s. We are grateful, God, for all the wonderful ministry that's taken place across our last 119 years together as we've been affiliated with a variety of denominations. But now as we look toward the future, we pray for our congregation, our members, that we would ask for your will to be done. We want to be obedient to you. We want you to be leading us in this decision. And so we trust and have confidence that you're going to do that in this last week as we discern and pray. In Jesus' name we pray, and now we ask for you to speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. My wife has a peculiar habit. I said peculiar, not annoying. A peculiar habit for how she selects books that she wants to read. Whether she's at the Hoover Library pulling something off the shelf or at Barnes & Noble or even borrowing one from a friend, she will take the book, fictional book, and open up to the last page of the book and read that last page and decide on that basis whether or not she wants to go back and begin reading the book from beginning to end. 
She wants to ensure a happy ending, a peaceful resolution to the story. And if she thinks it's not going to turn out the way that she likes, she will slam it shut, put it back, and forget it forever. Write it off forever. So she will not accept any story that ends in sadness, loss, unresolved tension, anything like that. I don't get that. Um, it ruins the sense of anticipation to me. And I think that because of that habit, she would hate the book of Jonah. Concluding our series today, and it does not conclude in a way that she would approve of. The last three weeks before today, we've been going through this strange story of an 8th century prophet lived about 840 years before Jesus was born. Or excuse me, 740 years before Jesus was born in the northern kingdom of Israel under the King Jeroboam. And God brings a word to this prophet and an incredible tale unfolds because of the way he responds. In chapter 1, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. Now we've shown this map of Tarshish, and as you can see, if Jonah was in the northern kingdom of Israel on this map, he was near the city of Joppa, which is near the modern-day city of Tel Aviv. So it's in Israel. And instead of heading northwest 550 miles, he heads almost due west 2,500 miles. He's running away from God, and we don't exactly know why until chapter 4. Well, a storm arises on the sea while he's on the boat, and everyone's life is in peril. And essentially, after the sailors are crying out to their own gods and trying to figure out how to save themselves, Jonah is awakened from the, with the, by the captain, and the, the bow of the ship is a stowaway. And the captain asks him well, who his God is, and Jonah begins to pray, and he finally admits to them, look, this whole thing is my fault. And if you want to get out of this alive, you need to throw me overboard into the angry sea. Well, the sailors, even though we assume that they are non-Israelites, appear to be devout people because they say, well, we can't do that. Let's try to turn the ship around. But when they fail, they then plead with God to have mercy on them because they know they have no other choice but to throw Jonah overboard. Well, Jonah's going to drown out there. And if the story of Jonah ended with his drowning, the message would be, you better not disobey God, just look what happened to Jonah. But the Lord is gracious and merciful, and it says at the end of chapter 1, the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and he spends the next three days and nights in the belly of this great fish, and he prays to God, asking for God's help. And after three days, God has the fish spit him back up onto the shoreline. So he has a second chance to fulfill God's original command to go to Tarshish. And so he goes. But we can certainly lift from the text that he goes without any sense of enthusiasm. He preaches a lackluster, uninspired, five-word sermon. He doesn't tell them to repent. He just says God's judgment is on its way. He doesn't provide the possibility for hope that maybe they could have a second chance like he did. It's the worst sermon in the world, but yet the king of Nineveh, when word comes to him that there's this prophet from Israel who's predict, predicting their downfall, he calls everybody to repentance and says, hey, hey, we need to get our life right and say that we're sorry and change what we're doing. And God honors that. God uses Jonah's sermon and their hearts are completely changed. It's at the end of chapter 3 and the very first verse of chapter 4, that we learn how Jonah responds to God's forgiveness of this people. 
When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, He relented and did not bring on them the destruction He had threatened. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. There are other translations of that last verse 1 of chapter 4. The CEB, Common English Bible, says, But Jonah thought this was utterly wrong, and he became angry. The King James Version says, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. Paraphrase the message says, Jonah was furious. He lost his temper. Why is Jonah angry? I mean, nothing that God does to the Ninevites has anything to do with Jonah anymore. But he's angry? Now, some of you have been angry with God before, if you, if you would admit it. Maybe you went through a time of profound loss. Maybe you lost a, close, lost a close loved one, maybe unexpectedly or tragically, and you're grieving. Sometimes that grief is expressed as anger. Or maybe your livelihood was stripped away from you. You lost your job or a business through no fault of your own. Or... Maybe you had placed your trust in someone, a family member or a close friend, and you trusted them implicitly and completely, and they betrayed you or perhaps they abandoned you. And it's a very human response, very human, for us to want to lay the blame at God's feet. And it sounds something like this. God, if you were really all-powerful and you were really loving, then you would never have let this happen. In fact, there are even some of the Psalms it almost sound like this. See if this sounds familiar from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night, but I find no rest. If you're looking for validation to be able to talk to God in that kind of way, Jesus is quoting Psalm 22 when He cries out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's okay, and maybe you need to hear this. It really is okay to express your anger to God in the form of a prayer. God can listen, and then God can comfort and restore your aching heart. But that is not why Jonah is mad at God. He's not angry because he has experienced misfortune or loss. God had saved his life and given him a second chance. Instead, Jonah is angry because of how God treated someone he didn't like. It says in the second part of verse 1, but to Jonah this seemed very wrong. He became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall or delay by fleeing to Tarshish. Now, First of all, we're giving a, given a peek into the heart of Jonah. But I want to acknowledge that it doesn't say that in chapter 1. Instead, God just says, go to Nineveh and preach against them. And it says, Jonah ran. But here he says, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I wonder if this isn't the text telling us that Jonah had not stated verbally and outwardly his frustration in chapter 1, but by chapter 4 he recognizes that that was the message in his heart. This was an interior condition of his soul. 
rather than some kind of openly stated animosity or prejudice towards the Ninevites. Sometimes, even though we know something is true on the inside, it doesn't seem real until we say it on the outside. Sometimes we allow the inner condition of our heart to motivate our external behaviors. And as long as we don't have to talk about it or admit it, we can keep pretending it isn't there. Last spring, I took my daughters to the daddy-daughter dance down at Deer Valley. We got all dressed up real fancy. It was a fun, really fun night. That was about the time of Easter, during kind of the Easter season. And I remember the Easter bunny had shown up at our house on Easter Sunday. And the Easter bunny brought to these two just delightful young ladies one of those gold foil wrapped chocolate Godiva bunnies. They each got one in an Easter basket. And later in the afternoon on Easter, after I had come out of the tomb of my nap, <laughs> one of our girls, I won't say which one, one of them said, I can't find mine. I can't find it. We said, well, where did you leave it? Well, I left it on the kitchen table. Has anybody seen the golden bunny, the chocolate bunny? Nobody had seen it. They were really distraught by this, and so we began to quit. Henry, have you seen it? Other sister, have you seen it? Other sister said, nope. Are you sure you didn't see it? Mm -hmm. Well, tell you what, we've looked everywhere else. I'm going to come look in your room. Wait, I'll go look. Which is Greek for, Dad, I thought you fell off the turnip truck yesterday, but apparently you haven't. And so about 30 seconds later, found it! Comes walking in, proud of themselves. I found it. What was it doing in your room? Oh, I had forgot that I had put it there. Why did you take your sister's Godiva chocolate Easter bunny and put it in your room that you forgot about? I was afraid that she would lose it, and so I wanted to keep it safe for her. <laughs> I said, you know, again... Didn't fall off the turnip truck yesterday. I said, you know what? That is so kind of you. So kind. That might happen. She could misplace her chocolate bunny. And so I tell you what, I'm going to give her mine too. And mine was about three inches taller, about another thousand calories. And she's going to get to have both of those. And I watched just this gritting, the jawline clench. And I finally said, you didn't put that in your room because you wanted to protect it for your sister, did you? Fine. I ate mine first, and I didn't want her to have hers. You know, it was amazing when she said, fine, that you could watch in her nonverbal tension and frustration in her body just start to relax. Some of us allow the bitterness in our own hearts to drive or motivate our behaviors. And when we say out loud what is really going on on the inside, what caused that to happen, sometimes we can find it hard to accept the darkness in our own heart. And this is how Jonah's heart is with God in chapter 4. He says to God, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Better for me to die than to live? In other words, I would rather be dead 
than have to sit here and observe you being kind to people that I consider my enemy. There's a dark heart within Jonah at this point in the story. Jonah is close enough to have experienced God's grace as he recounts in that passage. But perhaps he's not close enough to God to begin reflecting God's own character. He had been the recipient of it, but he was not ready to be the provider of God's grace. And so the Lord replies with almost a counselor's question. Is it right for you to be angry? God playing almost the divine therapist. Is it right in verse 4 for you to be angry? Forcing Jonah to look inside. But Jonah doesn't respond. Jonah is silent. He doesn't want to hear from God, so he silently pouts. It's hard to hear the truth sometimes when you know that it's true about you and it's going to make you angry. But it is a sign of spiritual and emotional maturity when we will consider whether or not something is true based on its own merits rather than discarding it because we are frustrated by it. It's Jonah's equivalent to that of a child when they place their fingers in their ear and say, la, 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 la. I don't want to hear the answer to your question. So in verse 5, Jonah had gone out and sat in a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord provided a leafy plant to make it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. Jonah takes his bird's eye view position to see how God's judgment might be enacted upon the city. And God provides him with shade. And it's the only time in all the four chapters that Jonah shows any semblance of happiness when there's something that gives ease and comfort to himself. Well, God provided that leafy plant the same way God had provided the big fish. Now, in verse 7, at dawn the next day, God provided the same way He did the fish and the plant, a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. Well, in verse 9, God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. Three times, he says, I would rather be dead than have to endure the knowledge that you were being gracious to this group of people. It's another simple question from God. There is heat outside of Jonah making him physically weary, but it is the bitterness in his own heart that makes him express for the third time that he would rather be dead. Sometimes, friends, when we feel like our life is hell, we would be wise to recognize the gate to our own hell is locked from the inside. Nothing that Jonah is feeling has been imposed upon him. It is all arising from the dark bitterness in his own soul. The story of Jonah's redemption is a story or the story of God's redemption in the book of Jonah, is one where the city of Nineveh experiences redemption, but it's offered to Jonah, and we're left wondering whether or not he will take the key and insert it into that lock and hear it go click and walk into the freedom of God's relieving the bitterness in his own heart. So in verse 10, the end of the book, verses 10 and 11, But the Lord said, You've been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and it died overnight. 
And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? Which might be another way of God saying, look, I am concerned about all of my creation, including those people that you hate. And I care about them, and I also care about the creation beyond the human beings. I am the author of this creation. And why do you find it so difficult for me to express mercy and love to them? Sadly for, the, for Jonah, the attitude is grace for me and judgment for everyone else. And it reminds me, I think the character of Jonah shows up later in the biblical story. He's not given a name of Jonah, but he seems to have the same heart. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells three successive parables about three lost things. He talks about a lost coin, and then a lost sheep, and then he talks about a prodigal son. There's a younger son who tells his father he may as well drop dead. He'd like his inheritance now. And he takes it, and he totally wastes it, dishonoring his family in a faraway land. And when he's finally at the very bottom of the barrel, he begins to recognize, at least I could go back and be a servant if my Lord, if my Father would allow me to do so. And he makes his way back home. And his father, when he sees his younger son, who could not have been more disrespectful, the father runs to him and throws his arm around him and places his ring on his finger and says, kill the fatted calf and turn up the music. We're throwing a party because my son, who was dead, is now alive again. And they begin to party because that's the heart of God for people who say, I'm sorry, and they make their way back home. But there's another prodigal brother. And he can hear the DJ, and he's coming in from the field. And he asks, well, what's the music about? And someone tells him, well, you remember your little brother? He's home. And your father has killed the fatted calf to welcome and celebrate his home and the older brother is furious. How dare he show his face here after what he did? And then how dare my father to accept and celebrate him? I'm the one that's been faithful. I'm the one that's done right by my father. I have honored my father and I've worked on his estate. And then the story says the same kind father who went out to the younger son goes out to the older son to say, you may have been in my family this whole time and you will always be with me. But it's a way of speaking a word of conviction and correction to the heart of his older son. I believe it's that same spirit that we hear about in Luke 15 that we've heard about already in the book of Jonah. I'm so thankful today as part of, uh, we're Christians first and you know Methodist flavor of Christians second. And John Wesley taught about a kind of God's grace that he called prevenient grace. It's the unmerited love of God that reaches into our lives before our invitation to convict us of our wrongdoing and draw us back to God. What the Ninevites received through the sermon of Jonah was prevenient grace. They didn't know they needed it. They weren't looking for Jonah, but yet he brought a message of second chance possibilities that they heard from God and they repented. And my question for you and for me today is, if you stop and think about the individual or the group of persons that you have the most frustration toward, 
perhaps the most animosity toward people you wouldn't want to share a meal with, people who have maybe done you wrong or you can't believe that they think or act the way that they do. Is there any of that attitude that God may want to redeem in you and me? Even though we're insiders to the family of God and we have a relationship, are there any dark corners where the light of the world, Jesus Christ, desires to shine a light? Well, the story of Jonah doesn't resolve, but our story can resolve. Because eight centuries later, God would send a human being called Jesus Christ of Nazareth, God in flesh. And for 33 years, He would proclaim repentance and forgiveness. And then on the weekend of His entrance into Jerusalem in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, He would descend into the belly of death in the earth. And on the third day, He would rise and to proclaim a new message that God's redemption has been completed. And it was for everybody. That's why I would say in Matthew 28, go into all the world and proclaim the good news, baptizing and teaching everything I've taught you. And brothers and sisters, when His redemption can take root in your heart and mine, we can begin to extend to others the same kind of grace that God has extended to us. So we don't have to conclude our own story the way that we believe Jonah might have. We don't know how he responded. We can respond differently. And it doesn't begin with gathering our inner fortitude to try to be the bigger person, take the high. It begins by kneeling to recognize our own forgiveness. And then we have the humility to see other people through the eyes of God, the way that God sees you and me. And let me tell you this. There may be a lot of justified reasons for people to criticize the Christian church in the 21st century. We are human beings. There are lots of examples of judgmentalism or hypocrisy and lots of bad things. But one thing a non-Christian may never be able to criticize is people who have the humility to admit my job is to allow the Spirit of God to enable me to love someone that I would normally consider unlovable because I should be considered unlovable. I've shared before, just a couple weeks ago, in 2016, I went to Seoul, South Korea. I was with my doctoral cohort, and we were in the city of Seoul, which it's small on this map, but it's in the northern part of South Korea, about 50 minutes from the dotted line, which is called the DMZ, the Demilitarized Zone. On the other side of that Demilitarized Zone is North Korea. Those of you that know recent American history know the story. The Americans were involved in that conflict. And those two countries have not been reconciled since. And the country of North Korea is, is under the oppression of one of the most cruel dictators on earth. And the people there suffer greatly. And they are... Um, not able to understand their plight because of the closed offness of information and news to them from the rest of the world. And so everything that they believe to be true comes from that cruel dictator. Well, I was there to visit Kwanglim Methodist Church, the largest Methodist church in the world. And while we were visiting there for about three days, one afternoon we were taken out to some coach, motor coach buses. And our group of about 35, 40 people joined with about 120, 140 people from the congregation of Kwang Lim, led by their lead pastor. And we went on these buses up to the edge of the demilitarized zone. We actually went to a military base 
that was positioned on a mountain overlook into across the demilitarized zone into North Korea. And we were welcomed by the general who oversaw that base. They led us up to an observation room, and you can see some of our group depicted here. Uh, we were looking out. We were kind of like a congregation like this. And we're looking out through windows of an observatory that were there in front of us where we could see over the mountains into North Korea. We had interpreters speaking into our ears so that we could follow the pastor's leadership. This is the pastor who began with a scripture reading and then they sang a hymn. And this was a hymn, I of course don't speak Korean, but I recognize the melody of it because I sang it as a child in the church. He abides, he abides, hallelujah, he abides with me. I'm rejoicing night and day as I walk the narrow way for the Comforter abides with me. And so I sat there happily and sang off-key in English as they sang beautifully in Korean. He then brought a message where he talked about how, how terrible the conditions were in North Korea and how much he longed for the reconciliation of those two countries to be one unified island as Korea again. Families that had been separated from one another. People who had experienced great pain and hardship because of the oppression there. He then prayed for the leaders of North Korea. God, would you have mercy on them? Would you, God, change their hearts so that they could see that the way that they're leading and the things that they're doing are not pleasing to you or good for their people? And so then he called the congregation to pray. And he asked everybody to get out of their seat, to turn around, to kneel on the floor and place their elbows in the seat. And for 15 minutes, he led that group of about 170 people who were all praying out loud in their own ways, praying that God would bring reconciliation and peace. If you watch the headlines, not a month will go by that there is not some bitter threat made from North Korea to the South Korean people. And yet here are the people of God asking for God to have mercy upon them. I don't know anybody in the world who could look at that example of the kingdom of God and the presence of Christ in that church and have any word of criticism because it's the otherworldly spirit of Christ helping them see even people who were self-proclaimed enemies as their neighbor. And my encouragement to you today is that if you find that in your own heart and spirit there's a person or a people that you have trouble seeing them through the gracious eyes of God, don't start by praying for their change. Start by praying for your own. And it may be amazing to watch what God can do as a result. May we pray. Thank you, God, for the story of this reluctant prophet, Jonah. And thank you, Lord, that in some ways we can see ourselves within his own story. We ask today that for each man, woman, and boy and girl who is listening to the ears of their soul to whatever it is that you're saying, that we might be willing to allow your work to begin in us and change the way that we view those with whom we disagree. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The church at Ross Bridge is located in Birmingham, Alabama and helps people find abundant life in Jesus Christ.